Hi, my name is Danny. Um, I don't have an urban legend for you right now. I just finished listening to the Snuff Films episode, which I was super excited. I was waiting to the end. You guys actually got to Three Guys, One Hammer. Super impressed. Good afternoon. My name is Kyle Vibert, and I'm from a rural part of Mississippi uh, called Newton County. And I was just wondering if you've ever heard of the Stratton Booger. Hey, um, my name is Trudy, and I have been an avid fan of you guys for ages. You were the first podcast that I actually fell in love with or made me want to listen to podcasts. Hi, my name is Jamie. Uh, I'd like to tell you a story about the Wampus Cat or the Catty Wampus, or uh, I've even heard it called the Catamount. Hi, guys. It's Jenny in Georgia. I was realized this morning how much I appreciate you guys swearing. I listen to some other podcasts where they cut out all the grown-up words, and it's just kind of sad and annoying. We're grown-ups. This is how we talk. And I think I've even read one of those fake news articles that said that swearing makes you feel better. I know swearing makes me feel better. Have a great fucking day, guys. Hi. Hey, again. Um... I don't know about shower curtains. Hey, y'all. Okay, my name's Sarah. I'm from Florida. I think what you guys are doing is really special. So, I don't know if you've already done an episode on this already. Uh, one time I, I did a road trip with my mom up to St. Augustine. So they have this thing there, sort of um, an Indian burial ground where um, the pharmacy was built over the Indian burial ground, and uh, they had a lot of hauntings there. Basically, whenever you walk into the pharmacy, you stand on this one part where there's this tomb that they built there because they built the tomb that stopped the hauntings. You could feel someone grabbing your ankles. Hi, my name is Timory, and I just listened to your A Bitter Pill episode, and I just want to say that I love you guys, seriously. If you're ever in the Pacific Northwest, we have to get drinks. Hi, again. It's me. I just finished listening to your latest episode with the Debit Clock. I am so incredibly touched by, what, by all the things you said. Thank you. And I hope that your episode means as much to others as it does to me. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This. They start telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. And welcome all of you listeners back. We have missed you all so much. And I just thought I'd take a minute. And instead of doing my normal weekly affirmation, which you do all deserve, my lovely little ducks... I would take a moment and make you feel smarter than everyone else at the party. And we are going to talk just for a second, just for a a tiny little second about the New Year's Eve song. Old Lang Syne? That's the one. So do you know who wrote it down for the first time? Burns. You are correct. It must have been reading over my shoulder. (laughs) No, I read an article about it like a week ago. I read an article about it like a few minutes ago and I thought I would tell everyone. So Old Lang Syne means for old time's sake. And now you can say that and be smart. Oh, good. And because it is the end of the year and we are kind of taking a look back, I thought I would just read the words that no one knows because they're beautiful. Deal? You're the boss. I am. 
So, should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and old lang syne? For old lang syne, my dear, for old lang syne, we'll take a cup of kindness yet for old lang syne. And surely you'll buy your cup, and surely I'll buy mine, and we'll take a cup of kindness yet for old lang syne. We too have run about the slopes and picked the daisies fine, but we've wandered many a weary foot since old lang syne. We too have paddled in the stream from morning sun till dine, but seas between us broad have roared since auld lang syne. And there's a hand, my trusty friend, and give me a hand o' thine, and we'll take a right good will drought for auld lang syne. We haven't had a poem in an episode in a while. It's true. I like to do a reading every now and then. But there you go. Say goodbye to the old year. Say hello to the new year. Take a deep breath. We keep thinking, oh, surely it can't get any worse. And that seems to be working out real well. But... Let's be positive. Let's be positive. 2018, it's going to be a whole thing. And you know, we do have some people to thank. Of course, want to thank all of our listeners. All We're of so you. happy you're all here and have been listening to us for over two years now. Oh my God. I feel old. <laughs> and we need to thank Quinja, Talia Spin, and Akun Tomak. Yeah. All for leaving ratings and reviews, and other people have left ratings too, and we really do appreciate that. And we also love all of our listeners that follow us on social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Just a Story Pod. And you can get on there and talk to us and chat and see all the weird things we post related to the episode. And sometimes not. Sure. Sometimes related to old episodes too. We also have a website, and it's justastorypod.com. And there you can find. All of our sources, episode artwork, catalog of back issues, etc., etc. And there are also links to the merch store where things like merchandise can be found. Oh, wow. Really? Merchandise. Oh, really? Dry goods. No. I guess they're dry. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> and we do want to remind everybody that Patreon has come to their senses and... <laughs> has fixed their issues and we are going to continue on with patreon we just posted a zodiac is my daddy episode on there and you can get access to there and find other fun things and help support the show and if you want to talk to us and you have things to say there's one more way you can get in touch with us and that's by calling the urban legend hotline and the number for the urban legend hotline is 512-222-3375 And there you can tell us a story, tell us about your day, talk about your favorite urban legend, tell us what your New Year's resolution is. I'd love to know what your New Year's resolution is. Or, you know, just talk about that one cashier that you think has a grudge against you and might be doing something to your order. Is this personal? No. You sure? Yeah. Okay. Her name's Sheila. Samantha. No Mm -hmm. names. No names. No names. So, now that your grudge is over... Back to the story at hand. So many stories. Stories. Today, we're going to do something we've talked about doing forever. That is... Fill in the blanks. A look back episode. You know, we've been doing this for two years, and we definitely kind of have our format and things we like to look into and how we look into things. And it's really pretty well established, although we always kind of go off on random ways and tangents and rabbit holes. I mean, it wouldn't be our show if we didn't do that. Right. But, you know, our while we are working on keeping our episodes around two hours now <laughs> and not letting them go on and on, you know, our old episodes were a lot shorter. Yes. And we didn't have the kind of research acumen, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. one could say. What is, what is that and where is it on my body? I'll show you later. Oh, no. <laughs> 
It sounds like a body part. Acumen sounds like a body part. Let's say it gets engorged whenever you go past Wikipedia. Oh, yeah, I know where that is. <laughs> so there have been a lot of instances where we might be you know, starting out on research for a new episode and we'll come across something and both of us at the same time will go, Oh, why didn't we find that? Because as thorough as our research is, occasionally, occasionally things do slip through the cracks or they have the nerve to happen after we record the episode. I know. (laughs) So this is not going to be like a review show or a clip show. It's not a clip show. This is not a 90s sitcom. Yeah. This is all new stories. This is stuff we have researched and put together. But it's kind of patching together and filling in gaps, like I said, from old episodes. And we're just going to talk about the stories that we know that we might not otherwise get to cover because we've already done the episode. So speaking of things happening after we recorded the episode, the audacity. Let's go all the way back to our first episode. What was our first episode? Call 911 if you want to live. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yes, the waking up. In an ice-filled tub with stitches on your back and a message written in blood or lipstick or something on the mirror that says, call 911 if you want to live. I've also seen it on a post-it, which seems underwhelming. Yeah, yeah. Not as dramatic, Flair. And you find out that your kidneys have been stolen by... Usually just one. Yes, because you cannot survive without one. So just this year, a news article came out Pakistani police rescue 24 from organ trafficking gang. Shut your mouth. Shut your sutures. Police say victims were lured to Rawalpindi in the hope of getting a job. Mm-hmm. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. In this case, it was really organized. They were tricked into going to the courts under the pretense of getting documentation to work. Mm. But actually, the group was just creating a paper trail. To provide a cover story. Oh my gosh. So Sadi Ahmed was one of the people that was freed from this house. He says he was taken to a commercial building, had his phone taken from him, and then realized there was no job. There were 20, Oh, that's yeah, bad time to yeah, realize there's uh-huh, no job. Uh-huh. Oh. There were 20 to 25 other persons sitting. I was told to shut up and be quiet and sit there. About 10 minutes later, the agent arrived and said, get ready. As I was going in for a test, I asked, what type of a test are you taking me for? What type of work are you offering? The trafficker said he wanted to test his kidneys and told him he would be given the equivalent of 2,300 pounds for the organ. Now, Ahmed said that he was beaten up, not allowed to go out, and that we were padlocked in. We were threatened that the police would beat us up and we would be killed. He was held in that home for three months. Oh my God. And he was saved when the police raided the building, freeing the 24 captives. Holy hell, man. Now, he says that he was due to have his kidneys removed at a nearby hospital called the Kidney Center a few hours later. That's a whole bad luck, good luck story, isn't it? Right? So there has been a lot more press in the last year or two about the fight against organ trafficking. There's been some big conferences, such as at the Vatican in Rome, where they brought people from all over the world together to try to come to like an agreement, try to help stop organ trafficking. They even invited the Chinese, which a lot of people protested against. 
um, because they have a strong history of using cadaveric kidneys and other organs from executed prisoners. Mm -hmm. But as the organizer for the group said, we have to have them. Because that's who we need. That's our target audience, kind of. And so they did have it, and you know the Pope, Pope Francis, did come out, Frankie, of course, condemning it and saying it was a modern form of slavery. Fair. So recently, transplant tourism in Pakistan has been on the rise. So Dr. Mirza Naki Zafar, the general secretary of the Pakistan Transplantation Society, says that despite a ban on commercial transplants in 2010, there's been a resurgence in the legal trade in the last few years, with as many as 100 illegal transplants happening every month. God. Now, black market prices for these procedures are in the range of fifty to $60,000 per patient. So as long as you have an extra fifty to $60,000 lying around and you can get yourself to Pakistan, you get to live? Well, <laughs> kind of. Because the procedure, of course, is not easy. And right. it's dangerous. And there have been cases of people going to Pakistan and having poor treatment and getting sepsis and infections and having really poor outcomes. Mm-hmm. Or even one case I read about, there was a guy that kind of scrounged the money up, got the money off credit cards and things like that, yeah. and went, and he like ran out of money, and he became septic, which is like a really bad infection right? that will kill you, Yeah, and he couldn't pay them anymore, so they were like, okay, we're done. <gasps> no. Every time I hear about stuff like this, all I can think of is the book slash movie Never Let Me Go. Oh, yeah, that's a pretty good movie. The book is actually very good, too. Like, the writer doesn't do it for me. There's not, like, a general... I don't think he's a bad writer. He's just not my type of... Yeah, the voice is um, very aloof. Yeah. And that doesn't do it for you. But anyway, if you feel like reading fiction ever, which I never do anymore, you might want to check that out. So, a lot of these people are people of Asian descent Mm -hmm. that live in either wealthier Asian countries or live in the UK or the US and then travel to Pakistan or other countries and have it done and then go back home. So data from the NHS blood and transplant shows that Pakistan is the number one destination of choice for patients seeking a kidney overseas. Overall, about 400 people have received follow-up treatment in the UK after having had transplants overseas since the year 2000. That is insane. And of course, most likely greatly underreported. Those are the people that had complications or other problems or were willing to even say, hey, I just came back from Pakistan and had a transplant. What are they going to do? Repossess it? Exactly. So something that has grown and grown and gotten more spotlight since our initial recording of the episode. Right. And I think that's probably due to our episode. Oh, definitely. (laughs) Definitely. I mean, the Pope is definitely, definitely listening to our podcast. Hey, Frankie. Hey, Frankie. This explains why our Omen episode is one of the most popular. Oh, yes. For sure. He's telling everybody, like, guys. They get it. You gotta listen (laughs) to this shit. You gotta listen to it. They didn't even get access to the archives. They didn't even get it. I mean, imagine. How did they figure out FDR was the Antichrist? I thought we weren't telling people that. So, of course, we can look at our stats and numbers and see which ones are the most downloaded. But really, hearing from y'all is how we really find out which ones really hit home with y'all. Of course, a lot of those are ones that 
we really researched heavily and I mean, they are, they are, they are complete. Yeah. It's, it several of them. We were like, yeah, no, there's absolutely nothing else. Just like Anastasia. I was like, we, we can't, we, we can't talk right. about Anastasia ever again. Yeah. And while there's a million things you could say about the KKK, which is one of our most popular episodes, there are no more stories that need to be told today. Today, If we do that, if we touch it again, we'll probably do another massive undertaking like that in a year <laughs> when I recover. But one that a lot of people, whenever I asked on social media what their favorite episodes were, was our hotel episode, which I didn't even know was so popular. I really, I liked researching this episode. It was one I felt like we started to kind of get the the data set. And that makes sense. Like we had a, a widespread, like some information like from hotel manuals and like uh, trade magazines and, and like folklore and, yeah. and real true crime and and that was of course episode 10 you can check out anytime you like but you can never leave so i found another awesome hotel mystery and it's most commonly referred to as the mortician's convention murders that's ominous yes i know it's why i kept reading so this takes place in room 260 of the amana holiday inn in Williamsburg, Iowa, on September 12th of 1980. Is there a skeleton under the bed? No. Oh, damn. Different episode. <laughs> You're right. So the victims' names were Rose Z. Burkett, who is a 22-year-old nursing student and single mother, and Roger E. Atkinson, who is a 32-year-old repairman and installer for the General Telephone Company, and he also lived in St. Joseph's, Missouri. What else was in St. Joseph? St. Joe. That's the where the Pony Express started. You're right. You're a genius. So on Friday night, Roger and Rose, who went by Rosie, had planned this getaway weekend because they were having an affair. Roger was married. His wife's name was Marcella, but the couple had no children. Rosie was a single mom, and she was working her way through nursing school. They decided to stay at this hotel along the interstate, and it just so happened that all the rooms were full at the time that they went to the front desk because the mortician's convention was in town. Nothing says romance like a ballroom full of embalming equipment. <laughs> it was an embalm room. <laughs> but luckily for them, because of a cancellation, last minute cancellation, there happened to be one room available. And so they took it. They checked in on Friday evening around 7.40 p.m. They ordered room service and they took three phone calls. Two were from Rose's babysitter, and one was from an unknown caller. They were asked to move their car because they'd parked in a handicapped spot, and no one working at the hotel heard or saw anything unusual during the night or the morning that followed. Now, when they failed to check out at 1 p.m. on September the 13th, a housekeeper ignored the Do Not Disturb sign and the locked door and made her way in to tidy up the room using a pass key. She opened the door and first saw the feet. Thinking they were asleep, she peered in further. Iowa County Sheriff William Spurrier said in a Cedar Rapids Gazette article published on September 19, 1980. She stated that she then slammed the door shut and ran for the manager, who then alerted the sheriff's department. At the crime scene, the couple were found lying face down in the bed. Roger was wearing his boxer shorts while Rose was fully clothed. Both were partially under the bed covers. Partially under the bed? Covers. Oh, fine. Under the covers. Fine. Blood was splattered all over the headboard and all over the bed. Their heads had been beaten with a sharp object like an axe or a roofing hatchet. One of Roger's hands was missing fingers, as if he had raised his hand in self-defense. Medical examiner stated that they died of blood loss and brain injuries. 
Buchanan County Sheriff's Department Captain Howard Judd, who worked the case for St. Joe, described the scene as pretty gruesome and said that there were obvious signs of overkill. Mm. Now, it gets weirder. The TV in the room had been left on, and two chairs were pulled up close to the bed, and it appeared that someone had put their feet up on the nightstand. Hmm. So, speculation, of course, is either that they knew whoever came in, right, and like he was sitting yeah. there talking to him, or she, I guess, or that he like sat there for a while after he murdered them and put his feet up, which is also creepy. Don't like that either. Now, there were no signs of forced entry, and there was no evidence of drugs or firearms having been present at the scene. Now, there are varying accounts about whether or not their money had been taken. In most of the contemporaneous accounts that it had not, but in some of the later writing when they were trying to link it to another murder, the reports say that it had been taken. Okay. So I'm not certain on that. Changing the MO. Mm-hmm. To fit the crime. Well, changing the evidence to fit the crime. Right, right. But I mean, we've seen that in a few different cases. Right. You know, people kind of like, like forgetting things or changing things. Like like the Zodiac? Like the Zodiac. Like, like that? Yeah. Now, there was evidence collected at the scene that showed that while sitting in one of the chairs that had been pulled up near the bed, the killer had carved a piece of motel soap and left the shavings all over the floor. You have a soap killer? Right. It was not the murder weapon. Okay, fine. Now, he used the soap to scrawl a message on the bathroom mirror and then obliterated everything except one word, this. God, what did it say? What did I it don't say? know. That drives me crazy. So we have a little bit of episode 15, writing on the wall. We have a little episode one, call what? 911, writing on the mirror. Oh, right. Yes, that's true. Oh, and then also in the welcome... Welcome to reality. Welcome to the world of A's. They're riding on the mirror. That's a common theme. Now, we also have the couple having an illicit affair that's punished by, you know, some unseen hand. Which is not only a horror trope, but, but an urban legend trope as well. Yes. So immediately following the murders, the police interviewed 400 people, including all the morticians from the convention and all the hotel workers and other guests. But this case was besieged by a swarm of rumors. And that is a quote from the time. So Rose's former boyfriend was suspected. His name was Danny Burton. And now Rose had previously kicked him out of her home and filed a complaint with the Andrew County Police Department, telling them that if she ended up dead, it would be, quote, because of her ex. Oh, God, how morbid. I know. So is the mortician's convention. They should hang out. So she'd also gotten a dog for protection. But she later found the dog hanging, butchered, in front of her home. Holy shit. Which is very... People can lick, too. Like where she goes in the bathroom and finds the dog hanging up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we haven't done that one yet. However, Burton had an alibi, and he passed the polygraph test. Oh, well, those are super accurate. Yeah, we did a whole episode about that. (laughs) Police also investigated an angle relating to her former place of employment, because there were... Threatening notes left on her car while she was working at Laverna Village Nursing Home. And Rose actually made plans to move and switch jobs because of the harassment. Now, there was also a man who had stalked her, who was a former farmhand that worked near her home. God, she has the worst life. I know. And he broke into her home at one point, and she reported that he'd broken in to watch her sleep. God. I know. Do they know who killed the dog? No. Ugh. 
I know. So many suspects. Just for the dog. So Charles Hatcher is the uncle of Marcella, who is Roger's wife, was also suspected because he was a confessed serial killer. He'd been convicted of killing two children from St. Joe, and he escaped from a Nebraska mental health center around the time of the murders. We have an escaped mental <laughs> patient. Yes. This is how urban legends get started. I know. He later killed himself while he was in custody. It, official reports say that he escaped four days after the murders, but people are like, yeah, if he was able to escape, how good were your records? <laughs> and like, who's to say he didn't escape and come back? So investigators also suspected the hotel bartender. We've all seen The Shining. We know that that's just a thing that happens. But he'd argued with Rose on the night of the murders. You've always been here, Rose. And she was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he's like, I sleep with your dog at night. And she was like, that's creepy. And then she beat him. I'm kidding. That didn't happen. And then she saw the picture. Mm-hmm. Of her dog. And her. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So he disappeared the night of the murders without collecting his check and then abandoned his pickup truck 22 miles east of the hotel. And then he enlisted in the military and what? absconded to Germany. What? And he was in service there by the time authorities were able to locate him. But the police never really considered him a good suspect for various reasons. It was a very loose connection. And they were very cued into the fact that Roger had been in his underwear. And they were like, it had to be somebody they knew, somebody that he was comfortable with, because he would not have like let them come in and hang right, out. Right. So that was like a major point for them. And they would not really let that go. And they didn't think that he would have been comfortable enough with the bartender to sit around in his underwear. But I'm like, hey, man, you never know. You don't. What if they invited him up? I think that that was probably a worthy avenue of investigation that was ignored by these 1980 Missouri slash Iowa police. Hey, man. <laughs> Just saying. And there was also a man who was convicted of a similar murder in a hotel near an interstate in Illinois. And his name was Ramunda Esparza. And the Illinois murder took place two months after this one. At both scenes, there was no sign to forced entry. A do not disturb sign was left on both doors. And oddly... There was toothpaste all over both of the bathtubs in the hotel room. For the other murders? For Raymond Esparza? Actually, it was in our murder, too. Our murder? Yeah. We weren't going to talk about our murder. No! The mortician convention murder. Uh, okay. I thought that was a secret. A blood secret. Shut up. It was known that Esparza had been in Iowa City on the night of September 12th, and that was just 30 miles from the crime scene. So they were like, he's totally in the area, matches his MO, blah, blah, blah. But it had to be kind of ruled out or discounted because there were serious, and I quote here, homosexual overtones. See? <laughs> to the Illinois murder. Uh, well, that doesn't discount it. Well, yeah. And there was no soap message in the bathroom. And then there were several theories involving various co-workers of Rogers because they used machetes to cut away brush when they were installing telephone lines and that would have matched the wounds left on the victims very well and because they were so cued into this whole boxer short mythos they were like clearly he would have hung out with his co-workers in his underwear which makes me question so many things about the police yeah of course so many but that didn't really turn up many 
leads. Now, there was also, in addition to the mortician's convention, there was a farm convention in town. Of course. And so a lot of people from St. Joe had come to this farm convention in Williamsburg. And people speculated that maybe someone had followed them from St. Joe and happened to run into them and murder them. Or maybe they'd run into someone and invited them back to their room and then... Yeah. What about their husband wife? The wife had solid alibi and no one ever really thought that was anything. And she seemed to play it like she didn't know it was going on. Utter shock. However, many accounts said it was not a very well kept secret. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so she probably could have known, but that was not something the police seriously pursued. And then there was the small matter of the cattle mutilations. I'm sorry? There had been a recent spate of cattle mutilations all over Iowa. Chupacabra? Exactly. Werewolf. No. Werewolf. Satanic cult. Of course. (laughs) So they were sacrificing all of these animals, these cows, and so they eventually escalated to killing people in hotel rooms because reasons... Because the devil told them to right, sorry. deal with the devil. Sorry, Come I on. these things. I had to learn how to play guitar. Now, there was some major fallout from this murder and subsequent investigation. The maid who discovered the bodies is reported to have become a recluse after making this discovery. Yeah, reasonable. <laughs> and 29 years later, Rose's sister was still looking for answers. In the immediate aftermath of the double murder, Miss Rourke believed she knew who killed her sister. But as the list of suspects lengthened, so did the doubt. There are just too many angles, she said. I cannot dwell on it constantly. I don't set myself up for disappointment. The officers said there were few factors working against them. With a crime scene in one state and many of the suspects in another, at least five different law enforcement agencies worked the case. A lack of consistent communication plagued the immediate days following the murder. The officers also admit that they may have released too much information to the public in 1980. Oops. Whoopsie. Mr. Judd, who worked the case originally, said it was a tough crime scene and a tough case. We tried. Well, at least they tried. They're hardest. So no no top suspects. They have no clue what's going on. I mean, they've got a good list of them. A list? Yeah. <laughs> Not helpful. I mean, my money's on the dog butcher. But who was that? I don't know. But if they could find out who killed the dog, they could find out who killed them. I'm just saying. So one other episode we released early on was our Killer Clowns episode. Episode two. Another oldie but a goodie. And also the world had the audacity to have a giant, creepy, scary clown hysteria outbreak after after we released this episode. Also, probably because we released this episode. Why are we not connecting these dots, Jacob? We should stop. (laughs) Let's do one about impeachment. Well, we did that billionaire episode, and I'm still waiting for our mortgage to be paid off. We don't have a mortgage, Steve. How about my student loans? That'll work. So about a year after our episode aired, all of the stuff came out, and we just cracked up because we kept hearing about these things, and we got an email one day. Mm-hmm. From our child's elementary school. Yeah, and so the Austin Independent School District sent out warnings. Threats of any kind against our school students and staff will be investigated immediately and not tolerated. We encourage our community to report threatening behavior of any kind so police may investigate and we can work together to keep our campus safe. And they went on to talk about the clowns and the clown threats. So one other school district in Texas, the Manor School District, received student reports of a clown walking around Manor High School. 
Now, they were investigating the claims, but then they got a message sent by, quote, Clown Joey. With a K. That's right. Full of grammatical errors and misspellings. No cipher. Aww. Saying, we're gonna get y'all Manor High kids in all the bathrooms. We got cameras set up. We are out to kill an attack. See y'all tomorrow. Classy. With a K. That's right. Now, in addition to getting the email, just generally warning, don't be a clown. We also got one that a man in creepy clown regalia had approached the chain link fence near our child's school. Yes. Yes, we did. And he had pressed his face up against the chain link and rattled it a little, but no further threat was issued. And he was quickly removed from the premises. (laughs) Fucking, this was not in the papers, nothing. It was the only time we heard about it. Yeah. And we asked Remy, when he came home, we were like, Did you see a clown today? He was like, What? Nothing. 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 Although he is so unobservant. (laughs) It could have been like, Remy! Like, what? 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 (laughs) Squirrel. Have you seen Up? Do you know Doug? Then you know our seven-year-old. So the most recent clown craze began in South Carolina with a Fleetwood Manor apartment complex in Greenville County. So at the edge of the dark, mysterious, scary woods, children were telling adults that they'd seen a group of clowns that had been trying to lure them into the forest. They say the clowns live deep in the woods near a house by a pond. Several children said that the clowns were offering them money to follow them into the woods close to the house by the pond. A woman walking home late one night said she had seen a, quote, large figured clown waving at her from under a streetlight. Another woman said her son heard clanging chains and a banging noise at the front door. After hearing gunshots, police learned that two residents were firing in the directions of the wooded area where they thought that they had seen clowns. A week later, more reports surfaced of clowns simply staring at Greenville residents near laundromats and again next to the woods. The property manager even distributed flyers reminding the kids not to go into the woods with clowns. Did they ever find the clowns? No, never. Phantom clowns, southern gothic clowns. So in North Carolina, parents and their children reported clowns leering at them from cars or on the edge of a forest. So all these people had been reporting this clown that they had seen. So in one of the areas, a local woman, Holly Brown, reported that the creepy clown was in fact her son, Angus, a 12-year-old with autism who donned his Halloween costume a month early. She said he was just excited about the holiday and didn't mean any harm. Oh, poor Angus. And it got more media attention and more sightings were seen, such as in Texas. But this was probably more than just a mass hysteria like we saw in Boston, New England in the 80s, where you had that first kind of big swath of phantom mm-hmm. clown outbreaks. Or like in Edinburgh, yeah, which John Lee's told us about, and he incorporated into his comic Sync, which you should check out. Paul's gonna read it. If you like creepy shit. Human stupidity was also involved. Yay! There we are. So a few weeks prior to the start of all this in South Carolina, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, 
many people reported seeing a clown around town holding a bunch of black balloons. Did baby's black balloons make her fly? I don't think he flew. Damn it. There were many posts on social media, pictures of him. As he was seen by more and more people, it almost became a game to the kids. But then, people started arming themselves. Oh no. Gags, as the clown was called, was actually C.J. Guzan, a local actor that was hired as part of a viral marketing stunt for a movie. He said, it's getting a little bit scary because people are starting to believe in it a little bit more. And we're starting to see more of those unsettling pictures on Facebook. Not of, of the, the clown? Not of the clown. Not of the clown. But of people armed and preparing to defend themselves, saying, I can't go outside because I'm afraid of clowns or whatever. That's just a little too far. Welcome to 2017. So police have begun arresting people dressed as clowns on various charges. In Alabama, seven people were facing felonies for making a terrorist threat. Cool. What are we doing to combat the clown terrorism threat? This. Arming ourselves. This is what the Second Amendment's about. Right to bear arms against clowns? Oh, hell yeah, if there's any reason for it. Can we use water pistols? No, only water flowers. Yeah, And an electroshock hand. Ring thing, yeah. So in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, a 20-year-old man was arrested for wearing a clown costume while hiding in a ditch. On what charges? Oh, in a lot of places, it's illegal to wear a mask if you're an adult. Fun fact. Like in public. In public, of course. Fun fact. You can wear your clown makeup in your house all you want. In Virginia... Two teens were taken into custody for donning clown costumes and chasing children. Get that one. Get it. And the list goes on and on. The police chief in Pawpaw, West Virginia. Which I'm so happy is a place. And I want to pretend it's named after someone's grandfather, not like a tribe or something. (laughs) It's probably named after the fruit. Oh. The pawpaw fruit. Got it. It was one. The pot. Okay. So there's a great article. Oh god, I can't, about the pawpaw fruit because it's one of the like subsistence crops of the early colonists that's not used anymore. Does it taste bad? I think it's just kind of bland. Yeah. I've never so had it. So are potatoes. Potatoes. Anyway, so pawpaw, West Virginia. The police chief was not so subtle, saying, "If someone sees you dressed like this, they have the right to defend themselves." It is not normal for clowns to be running around like idiots all year long. No, there's a time and a place for clown idiocy. <laughs> One day a year. I will stand behind anyone who feels they need to protect themselves from these so-called clowns. So-called clowns. So to sum it all up, if you run around in a clown suit, you should probably expect for citizens to beat you for their own protection. Then get arrested by police. <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it. Sheriff Paw Paw. Less than subtle, I said. You should probably expect for citizens to beat you and then to get arrested by police. Cool, cool. Now, as we know, with all these mass hysteria kind of incidents, even with stupidity of people involved, you know, they kind of last for a few months. They flare up and then they kind of fade away. But that memory kind of sticks around. And so an incident happened in Ohio just a few months ago. A frightened child ran to a stranger's car nearby and jumped inside and said she was being chased by a clown. The woman who let her into her car told police that the man wearing the clown mask pulled the child out of her car. Holy shit. Unsure of what was happening, the woman called 911. 
She told the Washington Post, I don't want to be named, but I can tell you it scared the bejesus out of me. So before officers arrived, the child escaped and ran into an adjacent apartment of 40-year-old Dion Santiago and told him that she was scared and asked whether she could stay there because there was a freaking clown chasing after her. Now, Officer O'Grady wrote in his incident report, Santiago turned off the lights and looked out his apartment window and observed a man in a clown mask standing outside of the building. Santiago grabbed his firearm and fired a shot out of his window. Well, the kid, the kid's freaking scared to death. I would too. I don't care if he's a clown or not. If somebody's like, a man is chasing me. Oh, I don't think it's that crazy. No. When officers arrived, the masked clown was yelling into the apartment at Santiago. Now, the officer calmed both men down, went in, found the girl, and said, I attempted to tell her that it was okay, that it was her father. What? The clown was her father? (laughs) However, she ran into the back bedroom of the apartment. Yes, yes, yes. The answer is yes. It was her father? This is like Star Wars all over again. Oh, God. So, of course, he was detained by police. He told officers that his daughter's mother was in prison for child endangerment after she had stepped on the child and broken several of her ribs. Fun. And due to this, he could not discipline his daughter or spank her. So, he decided to use the clown mask into scaring her to behave. Okay, I, I too have scared my child. <laughs> I thought of you whenever I read this. I too have scared my child pretending to be a clown. He is terrified of the Are You Afraid of the Dark episode, The Crimson Clown, but he says The Crimsley Clown, and he probably will forever because I'm never going to correct him. And he's terrified of it, and one day I I may have dressed a ball up like a clown and hid it in his closet. Maybe. May have. Maybe. So I want to say this man is a terrible human. He, he is. But <laughs> it's not the same. So Santiago defended his actions. Santiago's son spoke to the officers and provided a written statement and said due to the news and internet coverage of people dressed as clowns chasing people, he got nervous and scared when he looked outside the window and saw a man with a clown mask on. Also, when a child runs and is like, there's a crazy clown chasing me. Oh, I know. I mean, like, I don't think that you have to go be like, oh, there's a lot of stuff about clowns going around on the internet. I think you just have to say, like, this child was scared shitless, and I was trying to protect her. Yeah, but I mean, it makes it even, even worse. Scarier. Even worse. So yeah. recently, we have talked about spider bites. Everyone loved that episode. Because <laughs> and everyone wrote to us going, I had to turn it off. It was so gross. It is so gross. It is so gross. But we wanted to talk about it a little bit more. <laughs> Because it was a little thing we forgot to put in the episode because we had so much crazy shit to put in there. So this comes from an email that was passed around. And apparently it was a word of warning, as so many of these emails are. Oh, no. And Killer in the backseat? Close. It said, almost the worst thing anyone could say in 2004. No, no, no. It would have been the worst thing in 1994. It would have been the worst thing in like 1998, I guess. It said, all of your beloved Beanie Babies sitting around in the attic or at the top of your closet were not stuffed with plastic beads, but with the eggs of brown recluse spiders. And due to their life cycle, they're going to hatch. It's the most ridiculous thing (laughs) I've ever read in my life. (laughs) That didn't stop people from passing it around. Nah, they're like, you know, if that's true, maybe I'll sell them all on eBay. (laughs) Should have done that 10 years ago. 
But there was also a story published on the website ClickHole in November of that year. If you were obsessed with Beanie Babies in the 90s, get ready to fall in love all over again because these spider eggs they use to fill your favorite beanies are beginning to hatch. Collectors all over the country have been reporting that their long-awaited day has finally arrived when the brown recluse spiderlings bursting through the seams of beanies everywhere. Wonderful. It's owned by The Onion. Yeah, sorry. So, I will just offer this and then we can move on to something else. I think the year 2017, as we close it out, can be summed up by the number of times I've asked you, is that a real headline or is that from The Onion? So true. So true. So recently there was a few articles around about Gilles Deray. Bluebeard? Bluebeard. So we talked about him in our episode 29, Bluebeards, Gaslights, and Other Red Flags. You know, He was accused of the deaths of 150 boys in the 15th century France. And he eventually confessed and was executed. There's never been a coerced confession in the history of all French confessions, right? We've never talked about any of those. Mm -mm. And, you know, many people say he's the source of the Bluebeard legend, which is not really true. He may have inspired Perrault to write it down. But there's stories kind of like the Bluebeard story from all over the world. Right. But these articles really intrigued me because they would have fit perfectly in that episode. Because, like, the one I read on Atlas Obscura, which is a great website, if you haven't been there, was talking about this movement to clear his name. Well, that's going to be a heavy lift. Right? So, in 1992, the Breton Tourist Board, where his castle is, commissioned a biography from French author Gilbert Porteau, thinking that a new book about him would help spark the tourism to his castle. Cool. I agree. Now, many books had been written over the last few centuries about him, but most likely, none of these people were reading the original trial records. Mm -hmm. They were relying on Curiosities of the History of France, written by Paul Lacroix in the mid-19th century. Oh, that's never a good plan. And then the version of his tale was taken into J.K. Hosman's novel, La Barre, which, of course, was reinterpreted as nonfiction by the biographers that followed after. God, this makes me angry. <laughs> this happened so many times. I know, and every time I find out it's happened, it makes me angry. <laughs> so instead, the book Gilles de Ra au la guerre de Loup made the case that Ra was innocent. Proutot also called for a retrial in a court of cassation, the highest court of appeals in France, was conducted, and he was exonerated. Holy crap, that's insane! He needs to be taken down off of, like, every top ten list of serial killers from before you were born. Right, and then one of the authors of one of the many books that have come after said that one of the reasons this is still kind of circulated is that this is all in French. Mm -hmm, and it's mm -hmm. not translated. And so all the old stories and the old encyclopedias and books and stuff like that, it's still in there. So it's still circulating around, including in our podcast. What Proutot wrote, Nothing, not a clue, not a tooth, not a trace, not a hair. Not one witness who can say, I have seen. Not a weeping mother who claims... There is the dress stained with the blood of my dead daughter. Not a father who brings a child's heart ripped from its chest and wrapped in a spotted cloth. That's a colorful denunciation. It's French. Right. So he's been exonerated? Yeah. So how did he ever get this reputation if 
it was not a thing. Well, like a lot of cases like this, most likely it was political and financial. Two of the judges were business partners of him and they would have gotten a piece of his estate if he mm-hmm, died mm-hmm, or were mm-hmm. executed. Um, he'd also been an associate of Joan of Arc. Right. I remember that. And probably didn't, you know, get along with the church so well at the time. Right. Yeah. That. Yeah. So, sounds like Gilles Durand is the original Bluebeard. That one's definitely just a story. <sighs> I want the French Cassation Court transcripts. I'm so sure hard. you can find them and I can half read them. <laughs> cool. So, I promised that one day I would talk more about Nazi cows. Nazi cows. Nazi cows. And today's the day. And we talked about Nazi cows and the Nazis' attempts to breed these Aryan auric cows. That still exist today. They're known as heck cattle. And so I wanted to find a little bit more about Nazi cows. You know, there is the current effort to bring back the auric using the heck cattle and various other species, which I believe we touched on in that episode. If I was left to my own devices, I can't promise you it wasn't edited out. But I wanted to find you a new little nugget about Nazi cows, and I have. Oh, good, because people really have been asking about it. <laughs> so I aggressively avoided the book and the movie The Zookeeper's Wife. I thought it looked good. I believed it was an exploitative historical fiction romance thing. And I was like, this is not a good setting for this. Why are they doing this? Jessica Chastain, why don't you go back to Zero Dark Thirty where things made sense? But apparently it was not fiction. (laughs) Oops. I judged it very harshly. Movie book by its cover. It was by its preview and the music. I still blame the score. Previews ruin movies sometimes. Yeah, it did. I still blame the score. It was too like something Bette Midler would sing over. I don't know. Did you see the Deadpool trailer? Mm-mm. They, you know, it came out on Valentine's Day. Right. And they cut a romance trailer for it <laughs> to make it look like a romantic comedy. That's funny. And people really did use it to trick their girlfriends slash wives slash whatever to go see the movie. Yes. Do you, anytime I talk about this, I think about the different cuts of the Walk the Line trailer that we would see. Because mm-hmm. it was like, I would watch CSI on Spike and then I would watch some kind of true crime thing on Lifetime pretty much around the same time. And we would see, you know, like the... The man version. The man version and the lady version. And they looked like two completely different movies, like back to back. It's quite funny. But anyway, I felt like an idiot. But why am I telling you about this one time in my life that I have ever been wrong? The only time. That I'm willing to admit to, yes. It's because it's a very interesting story. And as I said, it's not fiction at all. If you did not see and or read it, it's about a couple named the Zabinskis, Jan and Antonia, who ran the Warsaw Zoo during World War II. And they saved around 300 Jewish people from Nazi persecution. Jan was a member of the Polish resistance and Antonia hid people in the animal cages and played specific songs on her piano to warn them when danger was approaching. Oh, And she'd survived the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, and both of her parents had been killed there. Okay. Whoops. I really did miss an amazing story. Sorry. I believed it was a Lifetime movie with better lighting, but it's actually based on Antonia's journals. But why am I telling you about the only time I've ever been wrong, you ask? It's because of the cows, my dear, the Nazi cows. If you will recall, 
The Heck brothers were tasked with backbreeding modern bison and cattle to develop Oryx, which was this mythological mega cow. And they kind of did. But these two stories collide in spectacular fashion because Heck was a friend of the Zabinskis. Really? He was. He was the Berlin zookeeper, and they were the Warsaw zookeepers, and so they knew each other, you know? Similar lines of work. He was the director of the Berlin Zoo and a pre-war colleague of Jan Zabinski's. Supported by leading Nazi member Hermann Göring, he set out to eliminate animals which the Nazis deemed racially degenerate. Seems like a trend. Yeah, it was a thing. His ultimate goal was to use selective breeding to bring back purebred animals that would be fitting of the new Aryan race. Of course. Now, in addition to Nazi cows, he also created Nazi horses. Oh, shit. I know. That sounds frightening. And those do still exist today, the Heck horse, as they are called. Now, Heck believed that these horse and cattle were nearly identical to the phenotype of certain extinct species. Of course he did. Yeah, just like their Lebensborn children were actually the Aryans. But anyway, anyway, today it's not seen as a successful resurrection. Now, he aspired to nothing less than recasting Germany's natural world, cleansing it, polishing it, perfecting it. A trend. (laughs) Right. And he also had a little crush on Antonia. Now, he promised the Zabinskis that he would look after the zoo during the occupation of Poland. But alas, he was a Nazi. And this did not end well. A trend. (laughs) Yes. Now, the Zabinskis loved their animals. They, like, kept animals in the house and had names for all of them. And their children, like, played with them and there are photographs of her like feeding lion you know lion cubs with a bottle and it's adorable they were very humane animal owners and so while heck was in charge of the warsaw zoo his nazism got the best of him and on new year's eve he and some of his fellow ss officers got a little drunk it's not gonna end well no and then they went on a murder spree of animals Killing. There was never going to be a good answer to that. No, it wasn't. And they killed some of the Warsaw Zoo animals for sport. Oh, shit. So in fathoming how Heck, a zookeeper himself, could kill these animals, it is believed that he did so in order to impress or win favor with higher-ranking Nazis. In her diary, Antonia commented, How many humans will die like this in coming months? Wow. Prophetic. Mm-hmm. Other animals, including one of the Warsaw Zoo's main attractions... Suzinka, the elephant, were taken to German zoos, and the best and rarest animals were taken for breeding purposes, including Heck's plan to resurrect extinct purebred species. So Jan was eventually captured by the Nazis, and he was held until the end of the war, but he and Antonia and their son were eventually reunited. Yay. Happy ending. And, fun fact, Nazis also passed a ton of animal rights regulations in 1933, and they were some of the most progressive and sweeping protections in existence at the time. They, like, banned foie gras. They banned hunting from horseback. God, they had some mixed priorities. They really did. Irony is fun. Everyone loves irony. Sure. <laughs> so Nazi cows. Hooray. More Nazi cows. People will be so happy. <laughs> so now in episode five, Meat is Murder. We recounted the tale of the Sausage Vat Murders, an infamous Chicago story of the Sausage King of Chicago. Right. Abe Roman. No. Adolf Ludgert. Abe Roman, you know, has a better ring to it. 
And of course, this was very likely the inspiration for their classic urban legend, Wonderful Sausage. Irony fun. Yeah, right. As told around the world and recounted in scary stories to tell in the dark. Now, another version of this tale shows up in Gumbo Yaya. A Louisiana version? Of course. It's spicier sausage, I'll tell you that right now. Definitely. The wonderful Andouille sausage. <laughs> so, Gumbo Yaya we've mentioned many times, and it is a 1940s collection of folk tales put together by the Louisiana Writers Project. And so an informant recounts the tale of the ghost who walked the sausage factory. Wait, pause. Serious question. No. <laughs> Not allowed. Were there sausage factories, or were there like backwood smokehouses. No, there were sausage factories. Okay. New Orleans was a major hub of industry, and okay. there's actually a large German population in Louisiana. That's why there's a lot of smoked meats. That's where it comes from. Right. I'm familiar with the Ville Platte version, where your family hails from. The smoked meat festival? The, yes. And I was going to say, they have a smoked meat festival and, and a festival queen, Miss Smoked Meat. Yes, your aspiring title. I would love to be Miss Smoked Meat, but... I've never seen a sausage factory. It's always a shed out behind some dude's house. <laughs> but there were. Okay. There fine. were. <laughs> and according to this tale, Hans Mueller came to New Orleans from Germany. He was a hardworking man, but he was in love with another girl and tired of his wife, who, working very hard in the sausage factory they owned, grew old and wrinkled before her time. Sausage does tend to make you wrinkled. Pause for dirty jokes. <laughs> Working hard in the sausage factory. That's right. Okay. So one night, Hans pushed his wife into the big meat grinder in the factory. Nothing of her was left. But a few days later, customers began to complain of bits of bone and cloth in their sausage. One night, soon after, he heard a thump, thump, thump around his boiler vat. Then he saw the bloody ghost of his wife with her head crushed to a pulp coming towards him. Shrieking, he ran from the factory. Then, a customer found a bit of gold wedding ring in a sausage. She called the police, but they found Hans Mueller in the factory, screaming and crying, a raving maniac. He spent the rest of his life in an insane asylum. So that actually does borrow a lot of details from the Adolf Lukert story. You're right, you're right. And you know... That's still probably the origin of all these tales in America. In that one, he definitely does put her in a vat in the yes. sausage factory. Yes. And they do find the wedding ring. Yes, and bone and, and clothes. Right. But she's not actually made into sausage, unfortunately. Yeah, that was the one letdown <laughs> of that story. So while that's still probably the origin of the tale, one forgotten murder was brought to our attention by Miss... Lauren Delaney Jarge, who's this artist in New Orleans, and you should definitely check her out. She's got some really cool stuff. So this is the tale of the Trunk Murders. George William Healy, longtime editor of the New Orleans paper, The Times-Picayune, in 1927, was just a reporter. He said Louisiana had another sensational crime of violence. That's what we're good for. We are. Tipped off by an insurance collector that something was fishy at an apartment on Ursuline, in the quarter, they gather a few people and, quote, gain entrance into the apartment. Also known as kicking down the damn door. Pretty sure. Quote, we found red stains in the floor and saw a large trunk in a bedroom, partially open. When I pulled up the trunk lid, a woman's body, arms, and legs, severed from the torso, was exposed. Dude, this isn't sausage murder. 
I would just wait. This is uh, the trunk murder. This is the Dorian murder. Could be. The drag queen murder. Could be. Anyway, make your case. <laughs> so he then called the city desk for them to send over a female reporter and, oh, maybe the coroner too. Why female reporter? So I learned a new term. Uh, like, you can stop right there. I don't think I want to know more. Oh, it's good. A sob sister. Okay, so these are people who kind of take the mold of Nellie Bly. Could be, yeah. Yeah, they write kind of like emotional pieces. Human interest human pieces. Human interest, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he was like, you better call the lady over. She's going to want to write this up. Okay, cool. So Gwen Bristow shows up. He says, I told Gwen if she didn't like the sight of blood, she might want to remain outside. But she charged into the apartment and sighted several objects on a bed. Look, said Gwen, holding up these objects. Lady fingers. Cookies? Lady fingers. Not cookies. Damn. Four fingers had been cut from a woman's hand. After placing the fingers back on the bed, Gwen moved to a second bedroom, found a second trunk, and opened it. It contained a second woman's body. I ran to another trunk in a third bedroom and opened it. It was stuffed with bed clothing. That's okay. Two's <laughs> enough. Be happy. That's what you found. So the bodies were identified as Teresa Moiti and Leonide Moiti. Now, Teresa's husband, Henry, was nowhere to be found. Trifling. Radio dispatches alerted departing steamer ships to be on the lookout for a passenger answering to Henry's description, tattooed and singularly hairy. Are you hairy? That's what it says. Like furry? So the AP story, vessels comb for traces of slayer of girls, New Orleans, October 28th. A search of land and sea was underway for Henry Moiti, former New Iberia, Louisiana, butcher shop proprietor. Oh my God. Who? Drink crazed and in a jealous rage, is alleged to have killed his wife and his brother's wife yesterday by clubbing them over the head and then hacking their bodies to pieces with a huge knife. That's so weird that he used a club and then a knife. It is, it is. And the knife was like a cane knife. Like a machete. Yeah. His brother Joseph surrendered to the police. He declared that both he and his brother had been having difficulties with their wives because of attentions they accepted from other men. Trifling. Joseph said he had taken his children and left his wife the day prior. His brother also said that he last saw Henry when he appeared at his room that night with his three children and asked that they be allowed to stay. So this one guy's got six kids? Yeah. That's a 80s comedy waiting to happen. <laughs> I can't wait for the revival where they go into the... <laughs> Why the dad actually went. It's like Weekend at Bernie's meets Three Men and a Baby. It's really good. So they did eventually find Henry. Where was he? Oh, well, the paper says, Moiti denies slaying wife, sister-in-law, admits witnessing sailor's crime, saw wife's head cut off, helped put bodies in trunk. It's always a fucking sailor, man. So, October 31st, New Orleans, AP. After recounting a gruesome story of the butchery of his wife and sister-in-law, Henry Moiti, alleged machete murderer, today was held in custody of police while they attempted to apprehend a sailor he named as the actual slayer. Cool. Moiti was arrested yesterday on a freight boat on Bayou Lafouche. It was that cut off. Cut off. Yeah. 
and returned to New Orleans after police had attempted for three days to capture him as a suspect in connection with the slaying of his wife and sister-in-law, whose dismembered bodies were found in two trunks last Thursday. A sailor whose name was Erickson or Arnsen or Oaksen or something similar was named by Moidy as the murderer, police announced. Sounds legit. He said, I helped the sailor put them in the trunks, but I didn't do it. Okay. I saw the sailor cut my wife's head off. Cool. But I didn't do it. I couldn't stop the killing because I was afraid of the sailor. Clearly. This sounds like a Ted Bundy confession. He would maybe cut their heads off, and I maybe would, like, put them in a trunk, but I didn't do that. Moy began his story by saying his wife was going with other men. He met the sailor for the first time Wednesday morning. Cool. Convenient. And again that afternoon when he confided to him his marital troubles. He said he asked the sailor what he should do. I know what I'd do if I had two women like that. I'd bump them off. Clearly. How? Henry said he asked. I haven't got the nerve or the heart to do it. Clearly. I'll do it if you'll get the stuff, Henry said, the sailor replied. Get a meat cleaver and we'll pack the bodies up, dump them in the river, and no one will ever know what happened. We can cart them away in a taxi. This fellow is just as handy as a pocket on a shirt. I mean, you've got a problem. He's got a solution. It's a man with a plan. He's good. What do you said? He bought a cane knife and some rope. Met the sailor that night, and the sailor hid under a bed. Makes me think of a writing on the wall episode, or the people... The nurse murder. The nur- well, it does make me think of the nurse murder. Richard Speck. But it also makes me think of the people that are already in your house oh, yeah. stories. Mm-hmm. They then, must be invited. Is the name yeah, of that episode. Yeah. Then he related, when everyone was asleep, the sailor emerged from the bed, decapitated Henry's wife, and the bodies were dismembered. Then his sister-in-law... After, and the two men packed them in the trunks. So, if it's not a sailor at this time... He says it is. Right, well, clearly. It's not a sailor. It's always a doctor. Yeah. (laughs) Top suspect. Or a butcher. Yes. Like, very Jack the Ripper, these suspects that are being named. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and point out that Moiti was, in fact, a, a butcher... Yeah, the Times-Picayune even pointed out that the manner in which the two bodies of the women were mutilated and dismembered indicated a man familiar with his trade. So, he's got to be charged with something, even if this other fellow does exist. Well, let's see. I've got a sob sister story for you. Oh, tell me. How jealousy turned a devoted husband into a demon. Strange complexes behind the trunk murder in picturesque New Orleans. Thus, Henry Moidy became a subject for the law and for psychologists who can explain scientifically the how and why of crimes of passion. Can they? When Moidy was a little boy in New Iberia, Louisiana, he fell in love with the prettiest girl in town, Teresa Alano. He cut out paper dolls for her, even though the other boys made fun of him. But she didn't pay attention to him, and he left and joined the Navy and came back to find her divorcing her husband. So he was a sailor. He was. Interesting. She married Moidy, although rumors of her wildness still remained. Oh, Teresa. (laughs) He said he suspected Teresa of infidelity, and when he spoke of it, she laughingly admitted it. Then came a day when she told him that she was leaving the next morning, and she and her sister-in-law meant to go out on the streets that night and flirt with other men. Saucy minx. Later that night, the two women died without knowing what hit them. 
Oh, sob sister. I think you wrote this in a past life. I think I did too. I need to look into Gwen Bristow. Oh, different sob sister. Oh, okay. He said, I hated her that night, but I loved her every moment up until that hour, and I love her now. So Henry Moiti faced the law. A surging frenzy of jealousy had made a primordial brute for one short hour of a quiet, home-loving young man who looked like a clerk. Why is that always the description? You tell me. You're the one that always goes through these papers. Looked like a clerk means that he did not have a like physical labor job. You know, like they're saying, like he looked bookish and professorial, but yeah. it's still just a funny turn of phrase and seems very out of place with the rest of the language. Now, I have to say that this does remind me of Jekyll and Hyde episode quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Because it's like he made a primordial brute of a man who is normally so good. Well, as we talked about, that's the time, the turn of the century. Everyone's worrying about evolution. Why are we able to turn to animals? What's separating us from the animals? And of course, that brings us back to our Bigfoot episode. Right. So Henry also confessed to the DA that his jealousy was aimed at Joseph Caruso. Which sounds like a made up name. He's a real guy ran a real estate office under their apartment on Ursuline. Oh, I see. Henry alleges that Teresa and Crusoe took, quote, friendly excursions on streetcars. Oh, well, (laughs) nothing good ever happened on a streetcar. Was it named Desire? I think so. In March of 1928, Henry was convicted of Teresa's murder and sentenced to life in prison. So like I said, this butcher murderer is not the source of the urban legend in Gumbo Yaya. But you have to wonder if it did help reinforce the tale. But there's one other little piece of information that might help that. On November 2nd, as Henry Morty was in jail, and all the reporters were standing out yelling questions at him through the bars. They could do that. They would like come in and have lunch with them. It was a very different time. Very, very different journalistic practices. He told the Times Picayune, if I ever get my hands on that Joe Caruso, I'll chop him up into little pieces. Not big pieces like my wife, but little pieces. My God, I'll make him look like something that's been run through a sausage mill. Okay, yeah, that kind of ties it all together. There you go. There you go. But really, I'm just sad there's not a murder ballad about this one. Oh, that can be arranged, sir. Call up Most Wonderful Wonder. We need them. And so when we were putting together this episode, we knew that there were a few episodes that were going to have more great stories to go with them. And the first thing on our list was sausage murders. We actually expected... To find more cannibalism stories. Shocking, I know. And then the second thing we put on our list was Satanic Panic. Because there's so many great Satanic Panic stories. I mean, actually, we kind of covered another one later on. The West Memphis Three. Yeah. Yeah. But for the purposes of this exercise, I wanted to find something where allegations were made and they didn't seem to be true. And I wanted to find something with actual Satanist. And I wanted to find something with, you know psychiatric malpractice worked in and I wanted it to be more recent. And so I put all of these ingredients into Google and said, what do you have for me? And I found GG Jordan. <laughs> Wonderful. I can't believe you found something. Never mind. Shut up. Come on. You talked earlier about my research acumen. <laughs> mm, your acumen is showing. Oh no. So GG Jordan killed her son in order to save him from quote, a lifetime of torture and sexual abuse. So Jordan gave him an overdose of pills, 20 Xanax, and 40 Ambien. 
Holy shit. That'll kill a horse. Now, the former socialite, multimillionaire, and self-made pharmaceutical executive was charged with manslaughter for his death, and she's currently serving an 18-year sentence. The New York Times says, She claimed that she believed she was saving her son from a lifetime of sexual abuse at the hands of his father and planned to kill herself next but her suicide attempt was unsuccessful. During the trial, she testified, I didn't see any way out of the situation. I made a decision that I was going to end my life and Jude's life. Now, Jude was the biological son of Emil Teskov, who was a Bulgarian yoga instructor. Of course he was. But Jude was born while she was still married to her first husband, Ray Mira, who was also a pharmaceutical executive and her business partner. And the boy had his name. Now, Gigi took Jude to the Peninsula Hotel on Manhattan's Fifth Avenue in February of 2010. She locked herself in a room with him, believing she was, quote, out of options. She believed that Ray Mira, her husband, was trying to kill her, and she was afraid that if he did, Jude would be left in the custody of Teskov, his biological father, who had sexually abused him. This, she alleged, put Jude into a traumatized state which doctors misdiagnosed as autism. I'm sorry, what? No, that's not how it works. <laughs> Stupid doctors. So let's pause here for a moment and kind of do a, a summary so far, because it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. One of her exes was a homicidal maniac. Right. And the other was a pedophile child molester who didn't mind a little bit of incest. Definitely. And a Bulgarian yoga instructor. That part's definitely true. That actually is true. So... Let's put aside for a moment that Gigi Jordan has the absolute worst taste in men ever, according to her. Really bad luck. Really bad luck. This is our first sign that she is not an angel of mercy. She's more of a, what's the word, delusional narcissist. In addition to being a homicidal maniac, Gigi alleged that her former husband, Mira, had forged documents and stolen millions of dollars from their joint bank account. And that's when things started to go a little sideways, when she started noticing that he was stealing these millions from their joint bank account. She claims he said, This is the end. This is over. Trust me, you're a dead woman. Oh, and also, he was apparently in business with the Philadelphia Mafia. She alleges that he was secretly involved in a massive black market racket for HIV and hemophiliac prescription drugs through his company, which was based in Melville, Long Island, and called Ally and Healthcare. Wait, is any of this true? This sounds crazy. It sounds batshit. But New York State Attorney General accused four defendants of peddling $274 million worth of outdated, contaminated, or diluted black market HIV drugs through Ally-owned pharmacies. Now, Mira had not been charged with any wrongdoing, but there was some weird shit going on with some HIV drugs. Interesting. Right. At some point, Mira adopted Jude while he and Jordan, Gigi, were still married. So Teskov truly, honestly, would have never gotten custody. He had relinquished his parental rights, and the boy had been adopted by another man, so that fear is already seeming a little unfounded. Gigi claims that Mira was always indifferent to Jude, but she eventually realized that he had only adopted the boy so that he could set up trust in his name and, quote, shield himself. She goes on to say that Mira eventually hired Teskov to come and drive her crazy. Of course. Hoping that she would have a nervous breakdown. She claims his ultimate goal was either to kill her or to have her committed to an insane asylum. She told the New York Daily News, Now I was being followed. I took Jude to see a movie. We sat in the center row of an otherwise empty theater near Lincoln Center. 
Did people come and sit on the side of them? Yes. No, needlemen? Yes. <gasps> Two men came in, and each one took an aisle seat at either end of our row. I wasn't paranoid. We moved. Not paranoid. But so did they. <gasps> Beside us. Later, when I took Jude to Starbucks, the same two guys followed us there. The others stood outside in the rain. It was very scary. Everyone knows needlemen need their frappuccinos, just like the rest of us. Right, right. She went on to say, First, the DA said I killed Jude so I could live as a socialite. If I wanted that, I could have paid to institutionalize him. I didn't because I loved Jude. Then, the DA said I was crazy. I was not and am not insane. I did what I did because I was going to be killed or institutionalized, and I would rather die along with my son than let him live without me to protect him from a life of horror at the hands of his monstrous father. Clearly not insane. Oh my God. So in addition to these various forms of pressure coming from her two former lovers, her husband and Teskov, there was the fact that the eight-year-old had come up with a murder-suicide scheme himself. I'm sorry, what? Right. So how autistic was her son? He was nonverbal. Oh, so how did he tell her about the scheme? They used a technique which resembles facilitated communication. Oh, (laughs) so in patients that are nonverbal and autistic kids and things like that, we'll use like alphabet boards and word boards and things like that to help them communicate and you can train autistic kids to use them and it's a a great way to communicate with them sometimes we actually talked about this before in our feral kids episode Mm -hmm. where the doctor actually invented these right and they're still used today but this time they were using them it with facilitated communication so they would hold their hand and help them move to the words they wanted to say or the letters they wanted to say. And they would use a keyboard and help them type. So obviously this is a terrible way to help someone communicate. And you get an subconscious idiomotor response. Like Ouija? Like with Ouija boards. Cool. You can help them say words that you think they should be saying. So it's been completely discredited. As a way to help with communication with nonverbal kids or people. So, so, so you're telling me that they used this with her son. She get... she did. No one ever trained or helped oh, or anything. It oh, was good. purely her oh, good. discovery. Oh, she Googled that shit. <laughs> so what did he say once she made this grand discovery that he could communicate using facilitated communication? Well, in 2014, Gigi claimed that Jude had learned to communicate with her by typing on her BlackBerry. Oh, I can't even type on that little ass keyboard. (laughs) Now, he was six years old and nonverbal at the time that he started this communication. Earlier in the trial, a teacher at Jude's school testified for the prosecution that Gigi always helped him write messages by holding his hand above the keyboard. Yep. (laughs) Now, beginning with simple words and gestures dating back to 2007, Jordan claimed that Jude had been begun recounting his experiences with his stepfather, and he later learned to type. She went on to claim on the stand under oath that Jude told her that he'd been tortured and sexually abused by dozens of people and that he'd been forced to drink blood and kill animals. At one point, she said Jude typed, I want to aggressively punish God. Wow, this all sounds very familiar. (laughs) What do you mean familiar? It's our 1980s oh, yeah, satanic yeah, yeah. panic. This is exactly what they said kids were saying. They'd be like, did you drink blood? And they'd be like, yeah. 
I also love the idea of an eight-year-old typing out, I want to aggressively punish God. Oh, definitely. In another conversation, he expressed, I feel so bad, I want to be done with life. According to Gigi, using this technique, he eventually said the following, I need to be dead. I need a lot of drugs to die peacefully. That's all. Well, that's convenient. She was reading what she said was a written dialogue between her eight-year-old and herself. Later, she said, he wrote, we're going to die anyway. Let's do it ourselves. So? Oh, my God. Well, naturally, she had to comply with the wishes of this eight-year-old. Oh, of course. And on February the 3rd, she gave Jude a large dose of Ambien and Xanax, which she'd crushed up into a mixture of vodka and orange juice, and she fed it to him using a tube-feeding syringe. Oh, God, she force-fed it to him. Mm-hmm. She then took pills herself and began writing a suicide note, but she suddenly changed her mind when she heard him struggling to breathe and tried to give him CPR, but it was too late. Now, this brings us to her trial and her very unique legal strategy. Her legal team used an interesting interpretation of extreme emotional disturbance defense. Now, normally, it's used for murders that are committed in, like, a jealous rage, when infidelity is discovered, or during heated moments after someone sees a family member killed. Most experts agreed. Michael Cahill, who's a professor at Brooklyn Law School, said the idea of killing someone to spare them from other forms of pain is not a scenario you see often. What drives the manslaughter mitigation defense is the sense that the victim provoked their own killing. So it's really not a strict interpretation of this accepted defense. Because, you know, a defense can either be accepted or rejected. Or like Right, because that could be used for any kind of assisted suicide case, if so. Right. And we all know that's not legal in most of the country. From the beginning, Gigi was aware that she was going to need to take the stand. She told the New York Daily News, I can't wait to tell my story, especially if there are mothers on the jury. All the mothers I've met here in Rikers who ache for their kids come to believe me when they hear my story. They put her in Rikers? Oh, yeah. So to prove that Mrs. Jordan acted during an extreme emotional disturbance, defense lawyers had to show not only that her state of mind was violently transformed, but they also needed to show that her emotions were reasonable and based on objective evidence. Which, to my mind, they didn't. But anyway. Prosecutors were less than convinced by the abuse allegations. They questioned the type messages that her son had supposedly sent to her, in which he alleged that his father abused him sexually. The judge also questioned this, at one point directly asking her, did you make this up and write it yourself? Nice. Like, you have to ask the question. Like, this is one of my favorite judge moments ever. Like, did you just fucking make this up? Uh, no, of course not. She literally said no. She claims, when Jude was old enough to communicate, he informed me that his father had been sexually abusing him since he was a baby. The horrific trauma was the cause of Jude's emotional and developmental problems. I went to law enforcement officials in three states. I couldn't get anyone to prosecute his biological father. Did she really do that? No. Of course not. She did not report the abuse to the police directly. She did to invite in a therapist in 2008, and she sought out intervention of a child exploitation investigator in Wyoming. But there, she was involuntarily hospitalized and given a psych evaluation. I can't imagine why. New York police report that there was no evidence of molestation and no evidence that Jude's father ever abused him in any way. And Teskoff has not been charged with any crime. The U.S. Department of Justice also denies that Mira was a known associate of any organized criminal group. Where was she getting this? Was this all just delusions? Maybe. 
Or maybe it was just the best defense she could think of. There were a lot of things that made it all very questionable. So for example, Rita Christman, who is a friend of Gigi's, said that she had been crisscrossing the country pursuing treatment for her son's illness and become very depressed from the effort to care for him, which is understandable. However, in 2006, Gigi told her that she planned to kill herself and Jude if he could not be, quote, cured, which is less acceptable. Right. I mean, you see that desperation is understandable, but you do occasionally see those people that do these fatal types of treatments, such as chlorine enemas, Mm. bleach enemas that kill their kids yeah (laughs) trying to cure them jude had been given the diagnosis of autism at 18 months so for this to be a response to a traumatic event at that young of an age seems crazy to me what do you think doc autism is not a response to anything (laughs) no no no. autism is something you're born with so Jude had been given the diagnosis of autism at 18 months, but Miss Jordan testified that she did not believe that diagnosis. For years, she'd taken him to a series of specialists who had treated him for autoimmune disorders with massive doses of steroids, chemotherapy, and blood filtering procedures. Yeah, and unfortunately, that does happen a lot. A lot? Enough. So, Gigi's actions on the day of Jude's death also raised questions, the New York Times reports. So both of the father figures had relinquished parental rights to Jude at this time, meaning that they would not assume custody of the boy. And neither of them had seen him or Gigi for months preceding the murder. Teskoff told the Daily News, It's clear to me that she was totally insane. It doesn't make any sense. The police know better. They talk to me afterward and they know none of this is true. Hotel employees testified that she displayed no outward signs of disturbance. They said that Miss Jordan coolly gave instructions to mail donations to two charities and that she paid the manager $1,000 cash for an extra night at the hotel, even after she had poisoned her son. And while he lay dying, she made arrangements via email with a financial manager to cover outstanding bills. Evidence showed. Prosecutors said that she coolly transferred millions of dollars into a savings account just before the killing and asked a financial advisor to transfer $125,000 from Jude's trust fund to her own account after poisoning him. And although Gigi said that Jude voluntarily took the pills, a medical examiner testified that he had bruises on his face and chest that indicated that they were forced down his throat. I mean, this definitely calls into question her state of mind. She was not completely in some kind of manic break or anything like that. Right. She had the wherewithal to transfer funds and pay for an extra night and all these things even after her son was dead. Like, to me, this is some of the most damning evidence. I mean, all the crazy. There's tons of crazy. That's fine. But But this is not crazy. This is very rational. When the paramedics arrived at Jordan's hotel room two days after she checked in, they found the door barricaded with a chair, and she was on the floor next to the bed where her son was lying. There was a pill crusher and a syringe lying nearby along with empty vodka bottles. And the first thing she said is, I'm okay. I need an attorney. Yeah. But the defense argued that she did it because she loved Jude. This was said in summation to the jury. So speaking with the New York Daily News, Gigi said, I was trapped in a corner. I was a mother trying to protect my young, my beautiful abused son from further sexual torture. I was being watched. I was being followed. And I couldn't outrun the mob. I was out of options. If I have to spend the rest of my life in jail, knowing that Jude could never again be molested, it's still worth it. So the jury was tasked with determining whether Jordan should be charged with manslaughter or murder. 
The manslaughter verdict was contingent on the extreme emotional disturbance being her motivating factor. So the questions that needed to be answered were, was Jude actually abused? Did Gigi believe he was actually abused? Was this a true delusion or was this a calculated excuse? It's hard. I mean, that's a lot. And to get 12 people to agree. But while the jury deliberated, Gigi began a very public campaign to win over opinion. I'm sure she did. She built a website and launched it. It was called The Inadmissible Truth. And she claimed that she hadn't gotten a fair trial because exculpatory evidence had been suppressed. I know this was only a few years ago, but I imagine it like in 1993. Like Angel Fire. Angel Fire. <laughs> so the evidence which was not allowed at trial included her suicide note and testimony from an expert who would claim that autism symptoms might have been caused by sexual abuse. Oh, an expert, you say? I do. This, again, reminds me so much of the West Memphis 3 trial. Yeah, definitely. She also gave interviews to daytime TV hosts. They let her talk? Dr. Phil McGraw, better known as Dr. Phil, you're fat because you eat too much. Oh, fantastic. And the Wall Street Journal and CBS New York. Within days of finishing her testimony, her testimony lasted for four days, by oh, the way. God. Now, Dr. Phil asked her, would you end his life again? And she said, I would do a better job of making sure I ended my own. Oh, why did her lawyers let her talk? I don't know that they so Terrible. much let her do anything. They're supposed to stop her from doing things that can hurt her case. Well, whatever Gigi wants, Gigi gets. She is a multimillionaire, after all. Yeah, that's going to go well for her. Mm-hmm. So the jury returned a verdict. That found Jordan guilty of manslaughter. And speaking with the Times, the juror explained that even if her allegations of abuse were untrue, she clearly believed them, indicating there was some kind of an extreme emotional disturbance, and that required a lesser conviction. Any belief, however incorrect, fit the description, and it was clear that she believed these stories. Don't know that they necessarily fully grasp the extreme emotional disturbance defense, but anyway... That's what they decided. Now, the judge overseeing the case, Manhattan Supreme Court Justice Charles Solomon, said all of her money, all of her resources, and she decided to kill him. There were so many other things she could have done. Right. Now, she does plan to challenge Justice Solomon's ruling that she could not argue that she acted in self-defense or under duress, which are permissible defenses, but he said they did not apply and could not be used in this case. Now, Justice Solomon did react poorly to the media blitz, as we suspected he might. See? <laughs> he did not believe, he said that he did not believe much of Jordan's testimony and pointed to the interview with McGraw, Dr. Phil as evidence that she hadn't expressed any genuine remorse for her son's death. He said, one would think that I would hear something from the defendant about having remorse for what she did. She's had five years to think about this and never said I'm sorry. So we have some kind of like forced memories from the facilitated communication and writing. Like, how is this tying in with our Satanist? Well, the Satanic Temple... <laughs> yeah, so I've heard of them. ...started a petition asking for an investigation into the circumstances surrounding this death. So they want an investigation to focus on Ellen Lachter, who's a therapist who worked with both Gigi and Jude. Oh, no. They created a petition, which is addressed to the California Board of Psychology. And they claim that her licensure, quote, arguably contributed to a recent high-profile death of an eight-year-old child because it allowed the propagation of unscientific, discredited, 
and patently delusional ideas to the detriment of mental health care consumers. Now, Lactor's website claims that she specializes in helping survivors of, quote, ritual abuse and mind control. Wonderful. And on the site, she links to articles about Satanism, ritual abuse, and government-sponsored mind control. Lucian Graves, because what else would his name be, is the founder of the Satanic Temple. And he said in an interview with Broadly from Vice, Gigi Jordan killed her child under the influence of this idea that she was preserving her child from future abuse by satanic cult conspiracy. All right, I've got to know more about this Lactor character. Because, you know, as we talked about in the Satanic Panic episode, it was a lot of psychologists that were pulling up these repressed memories and really pushing forward this idea of satanic ritual abuse that apparently was happening all over the country. And you better watch out. Your kids are probably being ritually slaughtered right now and while you're not watching. Every child is eating babies at daycare. We all know this to be true. So Lactor told Raw Story that neither Miss Jordan nor her son was ever her patient. Is that true? Well, there was reporting in Newsweek that said that Lactor did file a report in 2008 on behalf of Jude. So when this was brought to her attention, she explained, Miss Jordan first contacted me, having found me through my website on abuse, www.endritualabuse.org, concerned that ritual abuse might explain her son's behaviors and the disclosures he had begun to make. Jude's behaviors and disclosures reported by Miss Jordan were consistent with other victims of ritual abuse. Miss Jordan retained me to provide her with consultation and to help her to keep her son safe and to help him psychologically. She lied. Yeah, a bit. A little bit. Like all of it. <laughs> so she is the therapist who reported this, as mentioned at trial. But it's not to say that this mitigates Gigi's guilt. She is responsible for what she's done. And Sarah Ponto Rivera, the point person for the Satanic Temple's Gray Faction, which focuses on mental health and psychiatric malpractice. And eating babies. Said she deserves the consequences that she's brought on herself. But the power that also encouraged that should be investigated as well. So the Satanic Temple has been interested in psychiatric malpractice for years, especially in regard to the diagnosis and treatment of associative identity disorder and or old school multiple personality disorder. Greaves, the founder, said that he is deeply suspicious of the notion of repressed trauma. Often hypnosis and other memory retrieval techniques are employed to draw forth what is presumed to be accessible in the subconscious mind. Unfortunately, digging about for repressed memories can serve to create false memories that almost always conform to the assumptions held by the therapist. Yeah, and you can see why a group with the name Satan, Temple of Satan, Satanist Temple, or Satanist, or any of the groups would be concerned about this because you do see this come up over and over again. Everyone's like, those guys, they're the bad ones. But, you know, it's worth mentioning again that they're not so much Satanist as they are atheist using the name Satanist to be interesting and provocative. And just give a big middle finger. <laughs> uh-huh. They don't worship a literal Satan. They don't believe in that. This temple was founded in 2012 on the seven tenets of Satanism, which are like... We talked about. Be decent. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, Self-actualization. As saying, like self-care. Yeah. Things like that. So according to the group's petition regarding Lactor... In 2008, Gigi Jordan, mother of Jude Michael Mira, retained the services of California-licensed psychologist Ellen Lactor to evaluate and help her son Jude. 
Jude was severely autistic. By 2010, Miss Jordan murdered Jude by way of forced pill overdose. Under the delusion that she was preserving him from future tortures, he was to suffer at the hands of satanic cult conspiracy. It hardly seems credible that it could be merely a coincidence that Ellen Lactor shares with Miss Jordan a delusional belief in the conspiracy of a satanic cult abuse practices and secretive government mind control programs. In fact, we contend that much of the content of Ellen Lactor's own professional website is so evidently delusional, irrational, and bizarre that only a failing of oversight could allow her licensure to remain unexamined and intact. So did you go to the website? I did. Oh, it's fun. weird. Fun. Are those like flame gifts? Uh, I'm not telling. Uh-huh. <laughs> So one section on the website is titled "A R- Overview of the Differences Between Satanism and Witchcraft. Oh, please enlighten me. And it states that in Satanism, the pain of children is offered in sacrifice to balance the power of the gods, to give more power to Satan and decrease the power of Christianity and God. While in witchcraft, pain is used to appease deities and empower followers. The spiritual goal is apparently achieved in rituals involving extreme physical or sexual torture and human and animal sacrifice. Was this written in the 17th century? Yes. I thought so. I think the people that did... The Malefic Malficarum. Yeah, I think they helped with this. And they also helped with the Bluebeard's trial. Cool. So Lactor is in lovely company. There are other contributors to her website, such as a lady named Diana Napolis. Who stalked Jennifer Love Hewitt. Oh, good. Believing that she was part of a satanic conspiracy. Now, she also believed that Steven Spielberg, you might have heard of him. I think so. Was an integral part of some similar shadowy cabal and pursued him until he obtained a restraining order against her. So I can't believe this is still going on. I mean, I really thought satanic panic was like scrunchies and leg warmers and members only jackets and... John Hughes movies and just stuck in the 80s. I didn't think it was going to make a comeback. Everything makes a comeback. There's nothing new under the sun. Can we really have a nostalgia moment like we're having in pop culture without bringing the satanic panic back? And really, really, Jacob, we are in the post-fat era. Yes. We're bringing back trickle-down economics. (laughs) Satanic panic and synthesizers. But we like Russia now? Apparently. It's weird. It's all very weird. I don't know. We have a large government entity investigating people to be attached to former communists. Oh my God. Maybe it's the (laughs) 50s. Maybe it's the 50s. Who knows? So Greaves said that he first became aware of Lacter and her work in 2009 when he attended a conference called Ritual Abuse and Mind Control Conference. Do you think he thought that they were going to teach him how to do it? No, I think he was like a mole. <laughs> he was very disappointed. thought I was going to learn how to be a Satanist. Damn. But I got a cool t-shirt. But he states that Lacter spoke at this conference several times. He says people think this whole satanic panic is over and that it isn't an issue anymore. So this is the perfect case study to point people to to show them what a depraved problem this is and what an outrage it is that we still haven't managed to bring this under control yet. He goes on, we still have people under the authority of professionals licensing within the mental health field who are able to put forward the most delusional, paranoid ideas, which are so self-evidently harmful to the mentally vulnerable who might come their way. Graves says that Lacter was at one point associated with the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation, 
but when the group posted their petition, her name was removed from the website. Good. The temple is calling Lacter out. Miss Lacter's unprofessional materials are, in our opinion, self-evidently indicative of mental illness and her incompetence as a mental health care professional insofar as her ability to act as an arbiter of rational truth claims are concerned. They go on. It is our opinion that the evidence strongly suggests that Ms. Lachter's mental illness contributed to the murder of an eight-year-old child, Jude Michael Mira. We further contend that the very public nature of Ms. Lachter's delusional claims call into question the competence of the oversight processes that continue to allow her licensure. When Rivera, who works for Gray Faction, was made aware of the petition, she said, I'm all for it. My understanding of the whole case is that all the therapists that Gigi Jordan encountered prior to Jude's murder helped either instill or helped encourage the delusions that she already held. Why isn't our system doing something to protect people from therapists who aren't willing to help their patients? So that is what I like to call a complete reversal of fortunes. Right. This is a complete flip on the satanic panic. They're like, why aren't we protecting people from these crazy therapists? The Satanists are like... And also, I just have to point out that Alan Dershowitz was one of Gigi's lawyers. Do you know who Alan Dershowitz is? No, I do not. Okay, so he was an OJ lawyer. Oh, good. He's part of the Dream Team. And he's also the guy who's like, the president can't obstruct justice. The president is justice. Oh, God. He's an incredible legal mind, but my God, he's taken on some weird cases. I think he likes a challenge. I do, too. I think it's all bluster. But we apparently like challenges and bluster. We do. And maybe you do, too, because you're still here. And we love to look at these stories and start with these urban legends and take them places where you may not see it going, because these aren't just stories. And they tell us about our society and who we are. And by continuing to tell these stories and propagate these ideas, we call into question. We call into question the the systems and the culture and the values that allow them to be put into place. And we try to situate them in a way that you can see them from all angles. And we hope that by telling these stories, we're not only pulling back the curtain and telling you whether or not they're true, but more about how they work. And more about the people who tell them. And we all tell them. So maybe we're talking about all of us. And whether we're telling you stories about creepy clowns or sausage grinders or satanic panics or Nazi gals, we hope that it's never just a story. Let's keep telling these stories. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.